Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Today, we're in the season of Advent. It's a time when we hear the wonderful stories of Jesus, his birth, his coming, uh, and sometimes they kind of get all mushed together. We often associate the story of the wise men with Epiphany, which is a season of the church year that takes place, of course, after Christmas. But we're going to listen today to a lecture on the wise men, the Magi, by one of our own professors, Dr. Alan P. Ross. Dr. Ross joined the faculty of Beeson Divinity School in 2002. He teaches Old Testament and Hebrew. He is a world-renowned scholar, writer, a person who thinks deeply about the Holy Scriptures and how they relate to the Christian life. He's written so many books. One I'll just lift out for special attention is called Recalling the Hope of Glory, Biblical Worship from the Garden to the New Covenant. It's a wonderful biblical theology of worship. We're going to hear this talk that Dr. Ross gave on the wise men, but it was given not here at Beeson, but at the Cathedral Church of the Advent, one of the local congregations here in Birmingham with which Beeson Division School has had a long and productive relationship for many years. Enjoy this wonderful talk by one of our great professors, Dr. Alan P. Ross, given at the Cathedral Church of the Advent. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 today, which, um, if you are aware of modern theological trends, most modern theologians don't think any of this ever happened. I think it was the last issue of National Geographic had a quote on its front page saying that the slaughter of the innocents never occurred. This was made up by Matthew, uh, as indeed the story of the Magi was made up by Matthew. Usually they simply will say when they report that, that this is what the scholars say. Well, you can get scholars to say anything, and scholar doesn't necessarily mean someone knows anything. Um, the, I like the British definition of a scholar. It basically is someone who's paid to study. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're intelligent or that they're going to come out with the right conclusions. So whenever you hear anybody simply announce in a cavalier fashion that Matthew made this up, you as a reader or a listener need to demand evidence. How do they know that? <laughs> Where do they get their information? Rather than just simply saying, well, they must know. They, more, they know more than I do. Well, that's not going to work. And it's probably the reason why the church is so much in so much trouble, because people haven't been demanding evidence or any explanation. We have two sections of the passage that we look at. One is the visitation of the Magi. And the other is the slaughter of the innocent children. We're told by modern scholars that Herod would never kill children like this. Well, we're going to talk about Mr. Herod here for a little bit. And you can judge for yourself whether the man is capable of this. We know anybody is capable with of any sin if you push the right buttons. But if somebody has a history of killing people, it comes a little easier. After all, Herod did kill his wife, his children, the high priest, and gave orders to wipe out most of the priests when he died. So should we be surprised that he might kill children in Bethlehem? Well, this is one of the 
questions it is ignored because most of the modern scholarship wants to play Herod as a nice guy rather than evil. And they want to say that the Gospels had a knack of portraying the unbelievers as really wicked. So they make Judas worse than he was. They make Herod worse than he was. Well, anybody that knows the history of that part of the world, and especially at that period of time, isn't really going to buy that kind of a discussion. We have to set the stage a little bit for this passage. We're told simply at the beginning of the chapter, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now that's the background for the story. And we're being given some timelines here. The event takes place during the reign of Herod the Great. Now we've got to keep the Herods straight in the Bible. There are lots of Herods. That's the family name. So there's Herod the Great, just like later there'd be lots of Caesars. But Herod the Great is the father, and uh, he will turn the empire over to his sons. One of them is also going to be named Herod. He's the one that Jesus will have to deal with and be tried by. And that Herod, Antipas, whom Jesus calls the fox, he will be banished, and his domain turned over to another grandson of Herod the Great called Herod Agrippa and he will die on stage in Caesarea and it will be given to his son who is called Agrippa II but they're all Herods so you're going to deal with this family from this point all the way through the book of Acts Herod uh, the Great is the epithet that has been given to him in church history is an interesting character on a lot of levels he basically is made the king of Galilee and Judea about 37 BC. He is he is not Jewish. He is a he is a descendant of Esau. He's an Edomite. In the New Testament, he'll be referred to as an Edomian, which is the Roman name for the territory in which the Edomites settled. They used to live over in what is today southern Jordan. But during the days of Rome, they were forced out by Arab tribes, and they settled in the area due south of Jerusalem, which is Idumea. Herod had an ancestry, though, that could technically claim to be Jewish by religion, because about a hundred years earlier, uh, they had been forced, the whole nation of Idumeans had been forced to convert to Judaism by one of the Maccabean kings doesn't necessarily mean, of course, that he's a true believer. It just means that he either becomes a Jew by religion or he is put to death. But he used that to claim some allegiance because all of a sudden, I mean, he's going to be king of the Jews. He had to endear himself to the Jewish people because they all knew what he was. Two strokes against him. One, he was a client king for Rome. In other words, Rome put him on the throne. Uh, not physically, but they endorsed him and backed him in all of his wars. He was a very shrewd uh, fellow. He supported Antony and Cleopatra, <laughs> which was the wrong side. And uh, yet when Caesar Augustus destroyed Antony and Cleopatra, somehow Herod was able to go and meet with Caesar Augustus and, and uh, 
convince him that he could be just as loyal to him as he was to the other side. And so Augustus left him on the throne, and he became the king over that whole region. So the Jews were very suspicious of him because he was slippery, he was appealing to Rome, he was always appeasing Rome. Uh, but they were also um, suspicious of the man, too, because he was not uh, he was not Jewish. A descendant of Esau, of all people, ruling over the Jews, was not very pleasant thought. But Herod tried to appease the uh, Jewish people in other ways. One way he did was to marry one of the daughters of the Hasmonean kings, the Maccabeans. That put him into a marriage with the royal and priestly families of Israel. He later killed her, but that's beside the point. Uh, he married about nine people. And uh, that didn't quite appease the Jews, so he set about on building projects. He actually had the ideal situation. He was the king. He was allowed to tax the people heavily. He was not allowed to have an army. Uh, he had no control over the military. That was Rome. So you've got a, a ruler who can raise taxes, do whatever he wants, but he doesn't have a defense budget. That's probably too good to be true for most people. Uh, Rome would take care of the peace, and Herod could just go spending money. And he built many things to appease the Jews. One was the great temple in Jerusalem. And he also built things to appease the Romans, which were the pagan cities that he built for them. He controlled the country with an iron hand, with Rome behind him. Rome didn't care what went on in the country as long as they kept the peace. So what Herod would do is to make sure he uh, kept everything under his control. He controlled the priesthood. Uh, the high priest is supposed to be in power for life, but we know during the Herodian reign there were about 36 high priests. That's because Herod kept changing them. If he could change them, then uh, he controlled them. In fact, he even kept all of the vestments in the palace, and so if there was a high holy day, they had to come to Herod to get the robes. And if he didn't like them, he made sure that uh, they didn't continue. One priest he didn't like, he drowned him in his swimming pool. He was summoned to Rome to stand trial for murder. He got off with a bribe and came back. So this is the kind of person we're dealing with. But we know Herod the Great died in March 4 BC. So that gives us one range of reference for this event. It obviously has to take place before March 4th of uh, March, uh, middle of March, probably 18th or 20th, 4 BC, because the wise men come to the palace where Herod is still alive. He's going to be dead within a couple of months, but they, they're coming there anyway to the palace. So we know this takes place before Herod the Great dies. Now, how far earlier can you go for the birth of Jesus? Well, you can't go very far back because you've got to fit this in with some other historical uh, details, uh, such as uh, one being when Augustus gave the decree that everyone's supposed to be taxed. That probably was given around 6 BC. And he gives them this, you just don't do this overnight. If, if everybody has to move and go back to the town of their birth and register, He's going to allow this to work out for about two, two or three years. We also have to fit it in the time, Luke says, when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Luke is a very good historian, so he's giving us all of these little details of when the birth of Christ took place. 
So I don't think you can push the birth of Christ back much further than a month or two before the Magi come. Now, most people say that um, Jesus was two years old when the Magi showed up. There's no support for that whatsoever, except that Herod gave the ruling to kill all the children, the boys, two years old and under. But that doesn't mean that Jesus was now two years old. Herod is trying to figure out when did the Magi first see the star and uh, how long it would have taken them to travel across the Fertile Crescent and get to the place uh, where they are now. And that assumes that the star appeared at the time of Jesus' birth, whereas it could have very easily occurred a year, two years before Jesus' birth. So you can't pin this on to say, well, the star appeared at the moment Jesus was born, and it took them, you know, five, six months to get there. Jesus is by now um, one-year-old, two-year-old. That creates a real problem for a number of reasons. He wouldn't still be living in the same place if he is now a year old. They would have had to have either gone home or found other lodgings because they're staying in a place that isn't theirs. But basically, the Magi say they saw the star, and they knew then to come to Jerusalem. We'll talk about that in a moment. Herod is calculating to be on the safe side, kill all the children, all the boys under two years old. But we would probably still put the birth of Jesus either December 5 B.C. or January 4 B.C. And Herod the Great's death, March 4 B.C. Don't worry about the shepherds in the field. I mean, if you go to Israel, shepherds are in the field all year long. Everybody says, oh, no, they wouldn't be out there in December. Well, this isn't Chicago. Uh, this, <laughs> this is the Middle East. And the sheep are going to be in the field all year round. So we're dealing with um, a very tight frame of time here, that Jesus will be born probably December, January, and the Magi show up almost immediately, maybe a matter of weeks after the birth, and they're directed to Bethlehem. Herod is going to give the decree when he's duped by the wise men. doesn't wait long. He waits only a day or two, and then when they don't come back, he sends out the order to kill the male children in the city of Bethlehem. But by this time, Jesus and Joseph have been warned by a dream. They've already fled to um, Egypt. Uh, that doesn't mean they're there yet. Uh, to travel, even by donkey, from Bethlehem to Egypt would be several days. And so they've they're left town. The Magi have gone home. Herod gives this his last decree, which is to kill the children. And then he dies and is replaced by his son, Archelaus, in Judah, and Herod Antipas in Galilee, and uh, Philip. You don't hear much about Philip, but he rose up in the Golan Heights. He's the one that Herod Antipas took. He took Philip's wife, and John the Baptist started preaching against Herod Antipas, but that comes down later in the story. So you've got to keep these Herods straight, keep the time frame a little bit straight as well. Now, we're told that these people who come to the king are magi. There's all kinds of traditions that are grown up in the church. One is that they were kings. We have no evidence that they were kings. They're magi. And we'll talk about that in a moment. We're also told there were three of them, but it doesn't ever say there were three of them. 
that's deduced from the fact that they bring three gifts. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that there were three. There could have been six. It might have been five. We don't know. We're just told magi, which is the plural of magus, which means great ones. And uh, we know that they are from the east. Now, that's a big area, east of Bethlehem. That could be Arabia. That could be Babylon. That could be up to the north in Assyria, the steppes of Russia. We have no idea where they came from. However, Daniel... Chapter 1 lists them as part of the Chaldean uh, wise men, soothsayers, enchanters, astrologers. Remember when Daniel is summoned before Nebuchadnezzar, you get all these people who are capable of reading tea leaves and seeing signs and doing astrology. And one of the groups are the wise men, which is translated into the Latin with magi. Um, which means that they are very intelligent, they're scribes, they're well-educated people, they are given to the study of the stars, which in that day was a blend between astronomy and astrology. Uh, Matthew is not giving any uh, approval of astrology, he's just saying that these people are stargazers, and they were very accurate. Uh, these people were not stupid people. Some of them, for example, who lived in Egypt were able to tell roughly around 600 B.C. that the world was round. And they did it very simply. They set up, set up a pillar in Thebes, and they set up a pillar in Memphis, and at high noon they measured the shadow. And they discovered that one the same. There must be something going on here. The Babylonian Chaldeans had a pretty good estimate of the distance, size, shapes of some of the planets and uh, really understood their orbits and their cycles and so on. you got people here that spend their life studying the stars and studying the heavens, and suddenly a phenomenon appears in the heavens that wasn't there before. Now everybody tries to figure out what they saw. Did they see an actual star? Was it a supernova? Was it an exploding star? Was it a a mysterious lineup of Saturn and some of the other planets. Whatever it was, it was unusual. We have no idea what it was. Whatever it was was very unusual. It was very bright, and it, it was an omen to them. Everything has to be interpreted when they're studying the stars. We're, in some ways, very thankful for these people because without them, we wouldn't have the chronology of the Old Testament. Uh, in the Assyrian world, the astronomers kept detailed records of all the astronomical events that occurred in the heavens every year and wrote them up. And in those years of those astronomical events, they listed the wars and the kings and the events that took place on Earth. And so when we read about a certain king who came over and invaded Israel, and they say this is the year of the eclipse of such and such, we have no trouble dating it. And then we know seven years later, according to their lists, they came again, so we know when to date that. So we're very thankful that they studied the stars as much as they did, because without them, we wouldn't know the chronology of Egypt, we didn't know the chronology of Assyria or Babylon. So the men really knew what they were doing. They were very, they could have been aristocratic. Uh, I doubt that they were kings. If they were kings, they weren't ruling. <laughs> But they certainly were looked up to as the ruling class. 
And yet the word magi just means that they are the great ones. They are the wise ones of the earth. Now, how do they know to come to Jerusalem? (laughs) Well, the way that these astrologers work in the ancient world is when they see a phenomenon in the heavens, they have to interpret it. And you can't interpret it just by guessing what it might be. They know it's an omen. They know it's signifying something. So the only way then to determine what that is is to start studying the holy books. Start looking through the literature to find out if there's anything that is uh, written that's going to talk about this or that this will be a reoccurrence of. And the general assumption, and I think it's a fair assumption, is that they came across the Hebrew literature. Now, the reason that's a fair assumption is because when the Jews came back from the captivity in uh, 536 B.C., most of them never came back. Most of them stayed in Babylon. That's why we have the Babylonian Talmud. That was the center of Jewish learning, not Israel. It was in Babylon. That's where all the great scribes came from. That's where they knew the books of the Bible so thoroughly and were very influential in the governments of the East so that they really had records. And they probably could have told these wise men, if, if say, one of them asked the Jewish scribe, he could have pointed to the verse almost as quickly as Herod's men could. When Herod is confronted by the wise men, where is he going to be born? Right there in the court are all these Pharisees and scribes that, hey, it's Bethlehem. Everybody knows that. Well, I think the scribes in the East and the scribes, even the ones living in Herod's day, um, they would know the scriptures of the Jews. And the big prophecy would have been Numbers 24. Because in Numbers 24, verse 17, there is a prophecy given that the star will march forth in Israel. Now, there's a couple of things that are very significant about this prophecy of the star. It signifies a king. It's going to be appearing in Israel. It represents a king who's going to be born in Israel. But most importantly is who gave the prophecy in Numbers 24. (laughs) It wasn't given by a Jew. It was given by Balaam. Balaam is an astrologer from the east, He's a pagan diviner who King Balak of the Moabites hired to come in to curse Israel. And when Balaam stood up on the top of the hills in Moab to announce a curse on Israel, out of his mouth comes a blessing. Balak gets furious, wants to try another hill. So they go to another hill, same thing happens. Finally, Balaam realizes that he's not going to be able to curse these people because God has blessed them. So he starts offering blessings. But he gives the prophecy that a star is going to be born in Jerusalem. Now, you might say, well, that's just an obscure little passage. I didn't know anything about it. You made it not, but the Jews sure did. In 132 A.D., after the time of our passage, there's the final revolt of the Jews against Rome. Hadrian was the emperor, and the Jewish zealots decided they were still going to try one more time to overthrow Rome. They were led by a man named Bar Kokhba. That's Aramaic for the son of the star. He claimed to be the Messiah. 
And everybody knew the star was the symbol of the Messiah, so he took the title Son of the Star, meaning he's the, uh, he's the one, the descendant of this prophecy. Not everybody followed him. Others didn't call him Bar Kokhba, they called him Bar Kosiba, uh, Son of the Lie. So there was a real dispute over whether or not this guy was legitimate. But he managed to lead the armies against Rome and managed to get the whole nation wiped out. So he wasn't the Messiah. But the star prophecy was very big in Israel. And I suspect that these men studying this phenomenon in the heavens, which probably would have lasted for several days, um, they um, started looking into the books. And uh, looking into the books, they discovered the only thing they can come up with is Israel. So they go to Israel. And if you're looking for the king, where do you go? <laughs> you go to the capital city, you go to the palace. They don't know about Bethlehem, they don't know the prophecies, they just know Israel. So they show up in the royal palace, and who do they confront? Herod the Great. And he's not thrilled over the news that the Messiah has actually been born. So he's um, going to be troubled by this terribly. The Magi probably saw a some kind. We don't know what they saw in the, in the heavens. It certainly was, even if it was a natural phenomenon, it was by divine appointment. Uh, whatever it was, God arranged it for them to see. And you can actually make a good case that it would have been something not natural but supernatural. It might not have been a supernova or a star or an alignment of the um, of the different planets in their brightness in the heavens. It might have been something that God simply did that would focus their attention that they had never seen anything like this before. None of the records ever had it before. Now for that discussion, and I'm not going to get into it, you need to read Ezekiel. Because in the book of Ezekiel, it's one of the forgotten books of the Old Testament, the whole first part of the book, the first 12 chapters, describes how the Lord was rejecting the disobedient people of Israel and that they were going to go into captivity into Babylon. And Ezekiel sees this in a series of visions. And in his first vision, he sees inside the Holy of Holies, the temple, that the Israelites had painted grotesque creatures all over the walls because they were now idolaters. They were abominable idolaters. And because of their idolatry, the glory of the Lord, which was this luminous cloud, left the Holy of Holies and went outside the temple building and stood over the eastern gate. And then the next time that Ezekiel sees this luminous glory of the Lord, it leaves the eastern gate and it's standing over the top of the Mount of Olives. And the next time he sees this luminous cloud, it disappears into the east which signifies that the Israelites are going to go into captivity into Babylon. It wouldn't be a surprise to learn that God manifested his presence on earth with a reappearance of this phenomenon of the Shekinah glory, we call it, the dwelling, hovering glory, in this luminous cloud that would appear to the wise men in the east, it doesn't lead them, in spite of all your Christmas cards, it doesn't lead them across the desert. <laughs> they see it in the east. They know to go to Israel. They don't see it again until they come to Bethlehem and it's standing over the place where Christ is. 
And when it appears again, this is obviously now not a star in the heaven or Jupiter or planets or whatever, because now there's a brilliant light right over the place where Jesus was born, and that confirms that what they had seen in the east is truly what is taking place here. So it looks to me like it's more of a supernatural provision than some natural phenomenon that they're trying to interpret. Nonetheless, they come, and they come to the palace, and they have the very simple question, where's the one who's born king of the Jews? Not who's the one who's been born who's supposed to become the king of the Jews, but where is the one born who is the king? Well, Herod is the king. <laughs> and when you hear that the king of the Jews has actually been born, this is too disturbing. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Then he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. These are groups that didn't normally get along, by the way. Chief priests are largely Sadducees. Teachers of the law are largely Pharisees. They hate each other. And not in a, not in a mild manner like Democrats and Republicans. Uh, these people have been murdering each other for a hundred years and crucifying each other so that they really really detested each other. The Pharisees hated the high priests and nothing but contempt for them. But since they are in charge of the festivals, you have to go to the services. And um, they once in a while came with a bunch of rotten fruit to throw at the high priest or whatever else. But at any rate, he brings them all together because he wants to get a consensus of all differing views. And he wants to know where the, the Messiah is, the Hebrew word, the Christ, Where's the anointed one to be born? And they know immediately, Bethlehem in Judea. Now, if you've been to the land, you'll know that you could probably walk from the palace of Herod to Bethlehem in about an hour. We're talking about four miles. I'm not talking about a major distance here. Uh, and they are able to immediately quote the passage. And it's the passage that comes out of Micah. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Now, if you go back and read the rest of the prophecy in Micah, it also says that this one is going to be born in Bethlehem, coming from Bethlehem, this little town in Judah, is also the one whose goings have been from everlasting. So that on the one hand, he's eternal, but he's coming out of Bethlehem. So there'll be a birth. And it's in, it's one of these little towns. Bethlehem is very, very small. Not today if you go there. But if you were to go there in the days of Jesus, you might probably find 10 or 12 families living there. Wouldn't be much more. A very, very tiny community, population very small. But what's interesting here in this passage, it's so typical of unbelief. They know what the Bible says. They know what the prophecy has told them, that there's going, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Here they have external confirmation that it might be happening, because Magi have come all the way across the Fertile Crescent, because they've seen the stein in the heavens, the, the revelation that it's occurring, and they show up. But these priests and scribes wouldn't bother to walk four miles down the road to see if it was actually true because they didn't care. They held the power. They were the priests. Herod was the king. They're not interested in whether or not Messiah is born because they have no faith. 
Uh, they're not interested to even bother to look and see if it's true. And yet they claim to be looking for the Messiah. If you claim to be looking for the Messiah, and you won't go four miles to see if it actually happened, there's something missing in the faith there. What's interesting, though, is at the end of this chapter, Herod is going to try to stop it. Now, you've got a prophecy that says it's going to happen. The scribes and the uh, priests know where it takes place. The magi follow the sign. They show up, and it's there. And you don't believe it, but you decide that you can exterminate the boys in the village and stop a prophecy. There's no way you can do that any more than the Pharaoh of Egypt thought he could stop the nation of Israel by exterminating all the male children. Herod is no different than Pharaoh trying to kill off the boys uh, because he thought that was a threat. So if you know that this is the prophecy, uh, you know that God has declared that it's going to happen and there's nothing anybody can do to stop it. But if you don't have faith, you don't go, go bother to go and look. So here, the Magi hear that it's Bethlehem and they get the directions. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Uh, Herod is, as you know, all the way through his life, a tremendous liar. He's also, we know from his history, toward the end of his life, he becomes extremely paranoid about everything. This is why at the end of his life he killed some of his wives, some of his children, some of the high priests. Anybody he thought was a threat to him, he manages to destroy. So when he says he wants to find out where this child is and so he can come and worship him, why didn't he go? Uh, four miles to a town of 12 families? It wouldn't have been a major dint in his busy itinerary for the day if he really wanted to go and worship this Messiah. So he's a fraud, completely a fraud. When people claim to have good intentions and claim to have faith, you need to evaluate it by what they do. And there's no response by faith here in action. It's just words. We know from the passage that he wants to find out where he is so he can kill him. But he's not telling the Magi that because these are diplomats from another country and, and he's got to make sure. Now, they're going to go to the city of Bethlehem. They're probably going to find an easy direction to where this took place. It's not just that, you know, walk into town and say, has any baby's been born here lately? No, the shepherds have been going up and down the streets telling about what they saw in the heavens. This is not going to be a secret event in the city of Bethlehem, like just another birth. The shepherds knew, and the people would know, and it's the buzz of the town. And so the wise men would show up. Uh, they went on their way. The star that had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. So now they're being guided directly from the palace over to the place where the star stood. And uh, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. They hadn't been following it. Now it's reappeared. So they're delighted. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. That doesn't necessarily mean <clears throat> that the Magi believed that Jesus was divine. Because the word worship can mean to do homage or to show reverence or obeisance. In fact, this is very common in England. Worship is used for any, any lord. 
Now they even refer to them as uh, your worship. Well, that's if they're big enough lords. Uh, but I think the wise men know this is a king. And he's a prophesied king, and he's a special king, and so they're doing homage to him as a king. They don't probably know he's the divine son who's born into the world, but then neither did uh, the disciples for a long time either. But they come, and they do homage to him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. I know a lot is made out of this in sermons, that the frankincense refers to his his priestly ministry, and the myrrh refers to his death on the cross, and the gold refers to his kingship, maybe, but that's really pushing it. Uh, I don't think the Magi would have known anything like that. And besides, that would assume that only kings had gold, and only, uh, only the Messiah is going to need myrrh. These are herbs and different elements the myrrh, for example, is a healing balm that is taken from some trees in Arabia. Very, very expensive. Frankincense is a very expensive uh, incense used in a lot of lavish cooking, as well as in the priestly sanctuary. And gold is uh, always useful. So I think they are just bringing him the best gifts that they can have. Uh, these are the treasures that they bring from their home country, fit for a king. But I don't know that Matthew is intending to say, or that the Magi is intending to say, that this, these three gifts uh, line up with his ministry of prophet, priest, and king, or whatever else. I think that's probably reading more there than was actually there. I can't rule it out completely, but it would, I'd be more comfortable if Matthew somewhere said that, or if they said something... We know they didn't, even though in the movies you say they have the king saying something. We don't know what they said, let alone someone coming up saying, here's myrrh for his burial. Well, yeah, you use myrrh in burials, but you use myrrh for a lot of other things, too. So I'd be a little cautious there. But they give these wonderful gifts, which are valuable. I mean, it's going to be, you're dealing with Joseph and Mary are poor. They are dirt poor and to receive these valuable treasures uh, fit for a king because they're coming from these eastern visitors this is going to probably support them for years to come uh, they're going to have enough to travel with to Egypt they're going to have enough to get started in business up in uh, Galilee uh, this is a real blessing from the Lord but it is also a fulfillment of prophecy because if you go back into the Old Testament you will find several key passages I'm not going to take the time to turn to them because I want to talk about the slaughter of the innocents here. But you can read these passages. Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 6 is one of them. Psalm 72, verses 10 through 11 is another one. Those are the two cardinal passages. But you'll also find uh, Isaiah 49, 7. Many of these passages basically say that when the Messiah comes... He is going to be a light to the nations as well as to Israel, and that kings and the nations will come to worship him. What we're seeing with the visit of the Magi, who are clearly being brought on the stage by the Lord, because if there hadn't been any appearance of the star or the revelation in the heavens, they would have never come. So it's the Lord actually drawing them to Bethlehem, 
not as the complete fulfillment of those prophecies, but as the beginning of the fulfillment of those prophecies, that they signify a sort of a first fruit of the nations. That here you have, and this is so typical of Matthew to do this in the way he, he describes Herod. I mean, he's not making anything up, but just putting the, the two together in the way he does is very powerful. None of the other Gospels mention this event, but uh, Matthew does, because here you've got the leaders, the political leader Herod, the religious leaders, the chief priests, uh, the Jewish people don't care about coming to worship the Messiah. But the Gentiles do. And that's a preview of what's going to be the outcome of the whole gospel narrative. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. But the Gentiles do. And so they come and worship. And they come bringing their gifts. And what the Magi do is a preview of what is going to take place as the gospel goes throughout the world later. And especially at the second coming when the world is going to be drawn to the Messiah in ways that the writer Matthew could have never envisioned. So it's, a, it's another one of these situations where the prophecy of the Old Testament is beginning to be fulfilled, but it isn't fulfilled by three guys or four guys or five guys showing up from the east. Not when Isaiah says the nations and kings will come and pay homage to the king in Jerusalem. Well, that will happen mostly at the second coming. But here, we have that fulfillment. The Lord is in control also, and he gives them a dream not to go back to the palace. Revelation in a dream, get out of town. <laughs> Leave while you can. Don't go back to Herod. Uh, and so God warns him not to go. And God is also going to, in a dream, warn Joseph to get out of town, to leave for Egypt. So the dreams are figuring very prominently in the guidance that the Lord gives here at the beginning. So the Magi leave. They have come. They have, in Matthew's telling of the account of the birth of Jesus, given the um, authentication that this is indeed the promised Messiah who is being born. A little bit about the circumstances of the dwelling place. Uh, a minor point, but I think it's worth noting. The Bible tells us that when Joseph and Mary came to Bethlehem and they looked for a place to stay, it was very crowded, because not because it was a big t town, but because everybody had to go back to their hometown. I mean, you might come from a little town in somewhere in Alabama, but if the decree said from the federal government that everybody who's been, ever been born in that town and still is alive has to go back there and register, It'd be a boom town all of a sudden because we're all. That's one thing I've noticed about living in Alabama. Everybody talks about their little town they came from. I don't know why, but that seems to be bragging rights and who else came from that town and you know whatever else. But uh, the town would have been crowded. We're told that in the English Bible that they came to Bethlehem and there was no place in the inn. It's a very very uh, misleading translation. It was okay in the King James days to translate it in because they didn't have um, Marriott's either in the days of the King James Bible. There's no hotel in Bethlehem, not for 12 families. Uh, this is not really what is the case. The Greek word for the inn is simply kataluma, which means a sleeping place. There's no place to sleep. Now, we know from archaeology and from the culture that most of the poor people lived in caves. 
we actually have them that you can see how they were done. You'd find a huge cave, very, very secure, very safe, very peaceful, protected from the weather, and that would become your place to live. And what you would do is you could build rooms out on the front of the cave so that, you know, if you expanded and you don't have any house or property, you just add a room to the front of the cave. What they normally did is, is most people, even if they were poor, would have a donkey, a goat, something, not much. At night, the animal would be taken into the cave, and they would be kept in the back of the cave. And we know that because archaeologically we find these caves where they're hollowed out even more with pillars, and there are holes in the pillars where they obviously tethered the animals, so that a manger and animals would be in the back of the cave. And in the front room, everybody would be sleeping, and especially if all these visitors are in town, hip to hip, you know, on over the floor. And so it would be crowded. Now, on the one hand, it tells us that the people were very poor, but it also tells us that it would be far better for Mary to give birth to the child in the back of the cave than out there in the middle of all these guys. You know, if you're going to have a baby, back there where it's warm, quiet, somewhat private, I mean, what does a goat care? I mean, he's back there, he's not interested, but you've got some privacy. But after the taxation, the period is over, and the people start to leave, then there's room for Mary and the new infant to stay up in the front where the living quarters are. And that's apparently where the wise men come, and they find uh, Jesus, the infant, and uh, Mary and Joseph there now in the living quarters. But it's not going to be a big, expensive house, not for poor people. They just don't have that. There was such a disparity between the way the common people lived in Israel and the way the wealthy lived that it's almost even hard to calculate. The wise men aren't bothered by that. They know this is a king. And in fact, it probably even meant more to them that he comes from such a humble beginning because then that does require a sign from heaven that this is the Messiah. If it had just been a prince born in the family, that wouldn't have been a big deal. You expect that. You don't expect this. And so they know this is the one. So they escape. They go back to the east. Their lives weren't in danger, but they knew the child's was, so they leave. When they had gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt have I called my son, which I discussed last week. The um, Herod dies probably within a couple of months after Joseph and Mary leave town. Uh, he'll stay in Egypt, northern part of Egypt, until Herod's death, that is, until he hears Herod died. I mean, you're not going to watch it on CNN in the evening. It's going to take weeks for the news to travel down there that Herod the Great has died, and Archelaus is now on the throne. But Archelaus is worse than Herod. So he's not going to go back to Bethlehem or Judea. He's going to go up to Galilee, which is not under Archelaus's rule. It's under the rule of Antipas, the other Herod. And he's going to live up there. Uh, so that's the warning that he'll get after he gets out of Egypt. Then in verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. 
He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. We have no idea how many that would be. I think somewhere under 12. I don't think there'd be more than 8, 10, or 11 boys that would be killed. Not for the size of town Bethlehem was. You'd have to say, if you've got a village that has 8 or 10 families, how many 2-year-old boys and under are going to be there? We don't know. But it isn't going to be a huge number. One is too many to slaughter. But uh, 10 or 12, this is a major crisis uh, in the country. And so he gives the order to kill them uh, in that vicinity, and this is carried out with dispatch. I mean, the army would get there within half an hour and kill the children within uh, probably another half. It's going to be done very quickly. Then Matthew says, Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now this is Matthew's way of reminding us of what God is doing throughout prophecy with regard to Bethlehem and the suffering that goes on there. Every town in history has births and every town has deaths. I mean, that's just the way the life cycle goes on. But for one particular reason or another, we know that Bethlehem and its births and deaths are singled out because they're more significant to God's program. The first time you see this is in Genesis 35. Jacob comes back from the east and he's got his two wives and his two concubines and 11 sons. He doesn't have Benjamin yet. And as they are on their way down towards the middle of the country, they come to the area of Bethlehem, Ephrata. Ephrata is the old name for Bethlehem. And there Rachel is pregnant, and she starts to go into labor and give birth to the child. It's a very painful labor, as you remember the story. And so she tries to call the child Ben-Onai, son of my sorrow. Well, Jacob's not going to let his son have that kind of a name, so he changes it to Ben-Yamin, Benjamin, son of my right hand, which is much more positive. So that the child Benjamin is born, and that completes God's program for Israel, they're going to have the 12 tribes. But Rachel dies. So you've got a, a tragic, sad death for Jacob. He will mourn Rachel for the rest of his days. And Rachel will be in great agony and pain and suffering. But out of it comes the birth of Benjamin, which will complete the, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. That was significant enough for Genesis to make a major point out of it, and significant enough for Jeremiah to refer to it. Uh, the mothers in ben- Bethlehem, they're like Rachel. Uh, they are weeping, though not for themselves, who are in suffering and pain like Rachel, but they're weeping for the children who are going to die. Uh, And so he makes this beautiful little lamentation, imagining that Rachel, the mother of Israel, even though Rachel didn't have as many children as Leah, Rachel is Jacob's chosen wife, and so she's referred to by Jeremiah as the mother of Israel. And so here the mother of Israel who suffered giving birth to her child 
It's as if she now is weeping for her children, that is, the descendants of the tribes, and especially those who are living in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem, by the way, is in the tribe of Judah, is uh, part of the uh, southern region of the country. The next time you run into Bethlehem is the story of the book of Ruth, and we're going to be discussing that for a few Monday mornings here in January. Uh, If you know the story of the book of Ruth, it begins in chapter 1 with deaths. Elimelech, the husband, dies. Uh, The two boys, Malon and Killian, they die. There's a famine in the land. It's as if the land dies, and so they leave Bethlehem, Judah, and they go to live in Moab, and through the long, detailed story, which we'll get into, uh, they come back to Bethlehem, and through the circumstances that God brings about, at the end of the book, there's a birth. And it's not just an ordinary birth. You say, well, what's the big deal? Two people get married, they have a kid. Except we're told at the very end of the book the significance of the whole story. It's a little genealogy added to the book of Ruth. Now Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David, the king. In other words, if uh, none of the book of Ruth happened, there would be no David. There would be no king. And so God is going to move families around and create famines and harvests and bring about deaths and marriages to get his king to the throne. And it'll be the birth of David. Now the next time you read about Bethlehem in the Old Testament is in the prophecy of Micah and Jeremiah, Micah 5 and Jeremiah 31. And they're both describing the suffering that is going to take place when the Babylonian army invades. And when the Babylonian army invades, it's going to destroy the land, kill the people, and it will be a time of great grief and lamentation. So it's there in Jeremiah 31 that the prophet Jeremiah writes this little lamentation. He is not at the moment thinking about the Messiah. He's thinking about the suffering of the people in the land. And so Jeremiah sees all of these innocent people being slaughtered, many of them children, in the region of Bethlehem. And he writes the lamentation that Rachel, who of course is long dead, is weeping for her children because they are suffering and dying. But the weeping and the death that takes place in Jeremiah 31 is because the nation is going into exile and that the nation is being wiped out by the Babylonians. And so the weeping and the lamentation is both of the death of the innocent people at that time, but also symbolic of the death of a nation, that they're going into captivity. But most significant is in your study that Jeremiah 31 where the lamentation occurs is part of the New Covenant prophecy. Because in spite of how bad it looked to the people in Jeremiah 31, the whole point of Jeremiah 31 is God saying to them, I am going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I'm going to restore you to the land. I'm going to restore your king to the throne. And I'm going to pour out my spirit. And I'm going to make this covenant of peace. And that gave them hope. So why is Matthew quoting the verse from um, Jeremiah 31? Not simply to describe the great suffering 
and lamentation that must have been there, even if it's just a few families who have seen little boys slaughtered by the Roman soldiers. That is the obvious connection, that here's a verse of lamentation and the children are being killed mercilessly by Herod. But there's something more going on, because Matthew, when he pulls his material together, he's not making it up, but the writers can select the material, tell the stories for a bigger purpose. And the bigger purpose I think he has is from the contexts. They never proof text. They always draw the whole context in. The context in Jeremiah 31 was lamentation over the murder of innocents because they were going into exile, and yet that was the context of the prophecy of the new covenant. The context of Matthew 2 is this is the appearance of the Messiah. This is the beginning of the revelation of the new covenant because the king is here. And so while these children are slaughtered, what Matthew is actually saying by telling this story to us is the exile is coming to an end because the king is here. There may be some last minute suffering and lamentation over slaughter of innocent people, but out of this slaughter of innocent people in Bethlehem is coming the one who is the king of the Jews, the promised Messiah. And so that the the point is saying to the people, uh, the exile is over. Uh, the beginning of the new age is here because Messiah is here. Now, we do rightly lament for the innocents if we ever stop to think about it. It is sad. But the thing that we must remember in God's economy is, as Abram said when he was appealing for the people of Sodom, Will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? His conclusion is the conclusion, I think, that the whole Bible reminds us of. Will not the judge of the whole world do what is right? If you have innocent children who are killed here, then the Bible as a whole is making it clear that God is going to make it right. We look at it and say it isn't right. But God doesn't look at an incident in history. In fact, when you go to the book of Revelation... You start reading it a little bit more deeper than trying to figure out how many toes are on the beast. Um, you discover that the martyrs are the people who are closest to the throne of God in the book of Revelation. So that the innocent who die, and besides, if you're looking at it from a theological point of view, these are the first who die for Christ, which is a very interesting twist to Christ dying for the sins of the world. Christ has died for us, and so what we're supposed to do is take up our cross and die daily. We don't like that. But the innocents, they don't have any much of a choice, and they will die. And we say it's very sad, but in many ways it's, it's God um, ushering them into glory faster than the rest of us. And so God will take care of it, and God will vindicate it. The, the culprits who committed the crime will be punished. And the victims who were innocent, they will be glorified. But in this event itself, these little boys are killed because of the violence and the corruption of the spiritual leaders of the land. That, too, is a preview of what is going to work out as long as pagans run the world. As long as pagans run the world, whether it's the world of religion or the world of politics, 
innocent people are going to be slaughtered. We don't like that. It's wrong. We don't seem to be able to do anything about it. But you are living in a world that is ruled by the God of this age, the Prince of Darkness. And the only thing that gives people hope is that out of the darkness there is born one who is going to be uh, the king of righteousness and peace. And yet, in the early days of his appearance on earth, there will be no kingdom, because there are things he has to do before he will judge the world and establish righteousness. But here in this passage, we have both from the birth and from the attempt to kill confirmation that he's the Messiah. Herod doesn't realize this, but his attempt to kill the child Jesus is also a confirmation this is the Messiah. Uh, if he was just an ordinary child and Herod wasn't threatened, threatened by it, why bother to kill him? But Herod knows, and the Pharisees know, and the scribes know, this is probably it. Now the Pharisees and the scribes, they didn't keep records, so they weren't sure. But the Essenes were. Now, the Essenes are that group of people that went to live in the desert. They got so fed up with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they went out and had their communes in the desert. <laughs> Pharisees and Sadducees didn't study the scriptures like the Essenes did. The Essenes studied it thoroughly. The Essenes loved the book of Daniel. And Daniel predicts very precisely the time of the coming of the Messiah. It's in Daniel chapter 9. So that they knew that the time was now that he was going to be born. Because Daniel predicts to the very day when the Messiah will be cut off. Since the Essenes loved that, they knew this was the time. They made a major miscalculation. And the miscalculation was that when Messiah comes, he's not only going to be cut off, but he's going to reign. So they decided that since this is now the time of Messiah, let's throw off the Romans. <laughs> well, they tried and were exterminated because it wasn't the time of the kingdom. It's one of the most fascinating periods of the history of Israel because of all the views and interpretations. But they knew this was the Messiah. And the Gentiles knew this was Messiah. And uh, yet God is moving the Magi, the Gentiles, Herod, planets, if you want, stars, whatever, to focus on this one who's born king of the Jews. And he will be led out of the country to be protected, not just so he can be safe, but so that when he comes back into the country out of Egypt, he will also be fulfilling the prophecy of Hosea, out of Egypt have I called my son. God is working every angle, every prophecy, every detail to confirm that he's the Messiah and that he calls for faith. So we'll leave this for today. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.